Good morning. Happy New Year. Happy New Decade as well, right? It's a new decade. Happy New Decade. Anyways, my name is Tolu. I'll be, we'll be studying the Word of God today. Uh, I've been a member here about six, six and a half years, something like that. Um, and I'm a member of the church. I would love to meet you if I haven't met you. So um, if you don't have Bibles, if you don't have any Bibles, we'll have the ushers come down the aisle. Please uh, take one from them. Uh, and if you don't have one, please keep it. Or if you know someone that needs one, please keep it and give it to them. So today we'll be in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be teaching from verse 3 to 6. I'm probably going to read from verse 3 to 14 to just give us a fuller context of that. Uh, but we'll be uh, primarily focused on verse 3 to 6. But be- before we get into it, right? So again, it's a new year. Uh, generally at the beginning of the year, there's this sense of a clean slate, right? This sense to rectify things, to paint things as it should be. And, and some of us are into making new year resolutions. Some of us are not. It's fine. Whatever the case may be. Uh, what I would say to that, though, is that if you are making New Year's resolutions, make sure it's not just in your strength, but you're actually being dependent on God, on the Holy Spirit. Uh, the mystery of our work as Christians is that we live our lives dependent on the strength of another, namely the Holy Spirit. And so whatever resolutions we are making, if we are into that, uh, we do make them in the strength of the Spirit. So resolve to do what is right, of course, in the new year, whether it's at the beginning of the year, whenever in the new year, all of that good stuff. Um, something I wanted to bring out that touched me this week was I walk, um, I get this Christian newsletter, and uh, there was a story in there where basically the summary of the story is that at times when we face difficulties or we're facing a big decision, right, or we're facing some form of affliction, we generally want a map from God. Like a clear detail, this is exactly how things will turn out, these are the steps you should take. Uh, But a lot of times what God offers is maybe the next thought, maybe someone to talk to, right? Maybe the next idea, Uh, or, or to better summarize that, God offers us a lamp, which is usually his word, right? And what he does through that process is that he is redirecting our hearts to himself, to deepen our intimacy with him, to further deepen our relationship with him. And that's the thread I'm going to be pulling on today in these verses. And so my hope is as we study the word of God together, that your relationship with God will be deepened, that you will be reminded of who you are, your identity, and whom you belong to. And that you would see that God is always inviting you into this deep, interactive, budding relationship with himself. Let's pray. Father, even as we come before you, it is always a pleasure to be at your feet, to to know that we have audience with you. Mortal, sinful men having an audience with the almighty, righteous God. Thank you, Father. And so today we are here at your feet. Please speak into our hearts. Let your word be like hammer that breaks the hardened rock of our hearts. Let it be like fire that melts away our hearts, that that turns us back to you, purifying our faith, deepening our relationship with you. Please speak to us. Help us so that we are open to what you have to give us. And that we do respond to you, not in our strength, but by depending on you. In Jesus' name, amen. So every now and then I get the privilege really to to teach. And I thought it was a good idea to go through the book of Ephesians. And I normally make fun of Nick and how slowly Nick goes through scripture. (laughs) But I'm finding out that I'm probably worse. (laughs) This is the second time we're going to look at this passage. And um, like I said, I will be focusing on Ephesians 1 from verses 3 to 6, although I'm going to read the larger context of verses 3 to 14. So let me read Ephesians 1. So verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, in himself. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, 
He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So in looking at just the the passage that I just read, right, what becomes immediately clear is that after the initial greeting in verses 1 and 2, Paul launches into this outburst of praise. Right, and and that that outburst actually spans from verse three to fourteen, which is what we just read. And, and what you see in looking at the language and the structure of that song of praise from Paul is that there is this sense of exuberance that is coming out of him, this gratitude, this deep pleasure unto God. It, it is almost as if Paul, and we know this, has tasted the goodness of God. And then out of that is springing forth the song of praise. In, in the Greek, actually, verses 3 to 14 is one long, complicated sentence. Right? There are no periods. It is just one run-on sentence of about 200 words or so. Right? And, and so, again, that's where we get that sense that this is just pouring out of him. Right? It's, it's like a cascading description of God's work in Christ Jesus, one after the other. Right, so my aim today, like I said, is I'm going to look at just verses 3 to 6. I'm going to draw out some of the promises in there. I'll draw out some of the implications. And then I will settle on one major application. Maybe what could become our New Year resolution. Right, that, that's what we're going to do. So let's jump into it. So verse 3 is basically the thesis statement that Paul puts forward. Right? In verse 3 he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In that one verse, when you break it down, what you actually see is you see the triune activity of God, right? Just spanning all of eternity, before eternity and through eternity, right? What we see here is that God is taking the initiative to reach out to us, to pour out his blessings upon blessings upon us. This is without our merit, There is nothing we have done, right? If you read that verse, there is nothing there that says, oh, this is what we did to, you know, to merit those promises. God is just pouring out himself. So again, looking at that verse, verse 3, all blessings flow from God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through the sacrifice and redemptive work of Christ, we are brought into fellowship with God. And then God blesses us in Christ. Right? That phrase, in Christ, signifies basically all that Christ has procured for us through his life, the bloody sacrifice on the cross, and his resurrection. Now, if you actually look at that phrase, every spiritual blessing, first of all, the, the word blessing there doesn't mean material gifts, right? It also doesn't mean spiritual gifts, although it could be inclusive of all those things. But with every spiritual blessing actually points to the work of the Holy Spirit. That word spiritual there signifies what the Holy Spirit brings and gives for life. And so again, in that one verse, you see the activity of the triune God. Now, why am I saying all of this? Well, actually, if you jump down to verses 13 to 14, I want to bring out something here, even though it's not part of our text, but to further show the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me read that. Verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. What we see again is the activity of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is the seal 
of God's the Father's ownership of us. Right? If I were to say it another way, the Holy Spirit is a deposit. Right? It's like a deposit that guarantees right, that God, the triune God, will unfailingly redeem us to himself. I say again, the point of all of this is to show the triune, the, the activity of the triune God in that one verse. Now, why am I saying all of this? And this is the first implication I want to bring out. So that as you start the new year, I want this to be at the forefront of your mind. You matter to God. You are not just a random occurrence and a random creature, regardless of all the struggles that are going on. You matter to God. Right? God has placed immense value on you. See, for him to be pouring out these blessings, and we'll look at two of them today, and the next time we'll look at the rest of them. What it means is that you are valuable to him, not because you are deserving. No, you're not. I am not. None of us are. But he has placed incredible value on us. And so I want that to be ringing in your head that you matter to God. Now, to, to go back to that word blessing, like I said, right, it's not really uh, material gifts or spiritual gifts, although, again, it could be inclusive of it, right? Because we know that uh, this letter initially wasn't actually written uh, to the Ephesians. It later came to be associated with the Ephesians, but Paul wrote it to probably a bunch of churches in southeastern Asia Minor. Hopefully I got that out. Maybe southwestern, I'm not sure. Something. Asia Minor. <laughs> he wrote it to a bunch of churches. And later on it became associated with uh, the church at Ephesus. And the reason I'm pointing this out is Paul likely doesn't know the state of everybody that is going to read this letter. And so the, the, the blessings of God, what he's pointing out, right, to the audience, it, it's just as true whether we are facing intense persecution or whether everything in our lives is going right. And, and so I want you again to understand that the circumstances of your life do not determine your value to God. You matter to God. This is what the word of God says. Right? You are valuable to God regardless of where you might be. Now, if verse 3 is the thesis statement of this passage, right, the rest of the verses are simply enumerations of the blessings of God that are pouring out of Paul in what he's describing. He's basically describing like this lavish activity of God where God is just pouring out blessing upon blessing. Right? And we will cover two of those today. So in, in verse 4, we come across the very first blessing that Paul calls out. Uh, Let me read that, verse 4. Even as he, God, chose us in him, in him, in himself, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is a challenging verse, and I'm going to try to do my best to explain it. Um, it, The verse is quite clear what it's saying. God chose us in himself before the foundation of the world. Now, in, in Christian circles, this is what is normally known as the doctrine of election. Right? So before you shoot me, let me give my thoughts on election. <laughs> now, now, the doctrine of election is a hard one to explain. Right? It's even a harder one to digest. This idea that God chose me in himself, because the, the, the next question that comes to your head is, so he doesn't choose other people? What happens if he doesn't choose me? And we'll try to address all of that. As much as possible. Um, But the reason why this doctrine is hard to explain, maybe harder to digest, um, is that we are attempting to use human language, which is bounded by the limits of time. We are attempting to use human language to describe eternal truths that exist beyond time. So that's part of the challenge of explaining these things, right? And again, I'll try to um, just basically paint a, a picture here. So election, with our limited understanding and the limits of our language, means that the existence of God's people, his body, the body of Christ, is solely based on God's plan and action. This means that God made us his own purely on his sovereign will, apart from human influence. Now again, the natural question that comes up is, so who does God choose? How does he choose? Why does he choose? Let me give you a great answer. I don't know. (laughs) 
Right? I, I, I don't. <laughs> Quite frankly, I'm not sure anybody knows the answer to that. Right? I, I think there are simply things that are beyond our understanding, at least on this side of eternity. Right? But again, we'll, we'll make some observations that might help a bit. Now, our passage this morning speaks about election as a corporate term. Right? But there are other passages that speaks of election as a, a more individual term, if you could say so. And also, if you look at just scripture, there is a pattern of it. Right? So, first of all, right, we know God chose Noah right, to sort of start, uh, sort of chart a new course. We know he chose Abraham. And we know from that he chose Israel. And then from Israel, he would send one, his true elect one, Christ. And then through Christ, we are chosen in him because we are his body, right? So election actually is woven through human history. It's not just something we can cut out of scripture. Now, at the same time, it is clear that there is human responsibility somehow woven into this. Right, let me just read one scripture to point to that. So Mark eight thirty four. this is Jesus speaking. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. There is human activity there, human responsibility. Right. Now, it seems I've just spoken out of both sides of my mouth. I'm saying on one hand, God chooses his people. And I'm saying on the other hand, there is human responsibility. Yes, I have just spoken out of both sides of my mouth. That is true. Um, but, but the point is this. As much as it's hard to reconcile in the human brain, be rest assured, it is somehow reconciled with God. Right, so election wasn't given to us to just simply cause controversy. Election doesn't nullify human responsibility. Right? Neither is it set against it. What you see in the Bible is actually that the Bible doesn't reconcile this tension for us. Right? You see very clearly the doctrine of election in the Bible. And then you also see very clearly that somehow there is human responsibility woven into that. And I'm not sure how exactly that works. Now, in dealing with election, if our concern, if we are so focused on the fact that, wait, if God chose some and not others, why does he still hold unrepentant sinners accountable? Like I said, truthfully, I don't know. But uh, sometimes that question is more an indication of our heart in terms of we like to be in control. Right? We, we want to understand the different levers And we want to be able to pull those levers. And at the end of the day, we want to know what outcomes are coming so that we get ready for that. But God says otherwise. Because again, he wants to direct our hearts to himself. To deepen our trust in himself. So the tendency to ask how much of salvation is a work of God versus how much of salvation is a work of humanity, it's kind of like the wrong way to come across the, uh, to come at that question, right? Because in reality, both God and humans are not separate in, in this work of salvation. What I mean by that is this. Salvation is entirely a work of God in which humans are invited and totally involved. Right? So again, you see both. Now, if our concern about election is, oh, I want fairness and I want equity and, you know, how does God make all these decisions? Let me make two observations about that. First of all, you don't ever want what is fair when you stand before God. Right? Why? We are sinners. We have nothing to offer when we stand before God. So you, you do not want what is fair. What you want is mercy and grace. Secondly, if me and you, you are concerned about equity and fairness, and you know you're a sinner, you know you're not perfect, and you are concerned about fairness, then be rest assured. The righteous judge of all, the Almighty whose integrity cannot be questioned, will be more than fair. He will be beyond fair. So be at ease with that. Right, so... Let us lay aside the arguments and see that, yes, God does choose us. And yes, somehow human responsibility is involved with this. And let us look at the real point of election. Right? So if you go back to verse 4, let me just read that again. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. And that's what I want to focus on in terms of the implication. 
So two implications from verse 4. First of all, as Christians, we, we should be confident, we should be able to rest secure and be assured that our salvation rests completely on the work of God and not on an unsteady foundation. Right? It rests completely on the work of God and that should give us tremendous calm and rest. See, it is all of God's work and in accordance to his plan, a plan that reaches far before the foundations of the world. So you see, election, salvation and grace is actually a work of election. And that should keep our hearts at rest. This shows our value to God. Again, before the foundations of the world, he chose you in himself. It also shows the value of God's glory that God will choose mortals like me and you, sinners that are depraved to reconcile us to himself. It is as if a judge invites criminals into his home to be with him. Actually, it's more than that. That's actually not a good analogy. It's not good enough. So the, the, the second implication is that the point, the purpose of election is unto holiness. Right? He chose us in himself that we should be holy and blameless before him. Holiness doesn't mean you are morally perfect. That's not what it means. What that word literally means is that you are set apart for God, unto God. It's kind of like you are consecrated, like God chose you for himself. Right? That, that's what that word means. So holiness is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's actually about taking on the nature of God. And so that's why in Romans 8.29 that also deals with this idea of predestination and election and being foreordained. Romans 8.29 says, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So essentially you can take holiness to mean conformity to the image of Christ. You can take holiness to mean that we are to glorify God forever by taking on the nature of his son. That's what this is saying. So election, the point of election isn't for you to boast. The point of election is that you be conformed to the nature, the image of his son. Now, why am I saying all of this? Because when you think about it, the purpose God has in mind for me and you, that is we should be conformed to the image of his son, is literally mind-blowing. Like, think about it. God wants you to be like Christ Jesus. Right? In your thoughts, in your actions, in your posture, to be like Christ Jesus. You know what that means? If Christ is the radiant expression of God, and God wants you to be like Christ, God wants you to be a radiant expression of himself. No no other purpose comes close to this. This is what God wants for you. This is what purpose is about. This is why you matter to God. This is why he has placed incredible value upon you. So God looks at us mortal beings and says, I want them to be eternal beings, not just eternal beings. I want them to be like my son, the firstborn of all creation. And so I hope again that this is showing you your value to God, even as you start out this new year, even as there might be chaos in life, and I will get to that. But as you keep saying that you are valuable to God, and not based on anything you are doing. So the next time you make a mistake or you fall into sin, please run back to him. Because it is not based on your sin. His arms are always open to receive you, to embrace you. You matter to God. So the question I have to ask you is this, right? Having said all of this, how seriously, though, are you taking this invitation to intimacy with God? You see, as you plan for the new year and you make new resolutions, and you think about what you want to change, whether it's in the new year or at some point in the year, are you also planning for growth in Christ Jesus? Are you planning to be more intimate with him? Are you planning to respond to this divine invitation 
into intimacy with God, with the triune God. See, are you planning to carve out time to intentionally grow in God, to spend time with Him? Right? Of course, you must know that none of this is by our strength. Right? We do not do any of this in our strength, but by relying on the Holy Spirit. However, we must be clear. It is not that we are waiting on God. It is that God is waiting on us to respond to this invitation into deeper intimacy. And I just realized I didn't talk about the title of the sermon. I'm sorry. The title of the sermon <laughs> is deepening our intimacy with God. It's right there in your hand now. Um, but, but I hope you are seeing this call, this pull from God into more of himself. Let's go to the next lesson we see here. From verses 4b to 6. Let me read that. In love, that's at the end of verses 4. In love, verse 4, sorry. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let me first address that word sons, right? Because sometimes there is controversy about that. What this verse is essentially saying is that if you look at Jesus Christ, right, as the firstborn from all creation, the firstborn from the dead, right, the preeminent heir, right, very God of himself, true adoption, God is inviting us into equal footing with Christ. Not that we are gods, not at all, but inviting us into his family so that we are children of the Most High. Right? Sons and daughters of God. Right? That's what God is inviting us to. You see, we are created for fellowship with God. As we see that in Genesis, right? And then through sin and our rebellious nature, we forfeited that privilege. And here comes the plan of God, the work of God, the willing of God. <laughs> Excuse me. Right? The foreordained plan of God in the person of Christ who would come to leave, die, and be resurrected so that he can reconcile us back to God. So actually the language of adoption is appropriate here. Why do I say that? In our human world, when anybody is adopted, they have their position by grace, not by right. Yet they have equal rights as those that are born into the family. So also with us. Right? By grace, we are reconciled back to God. Right? And now we have the same rights as Jesus has with his Father. And all of this God did according to the purpose of his will, as you see there in verse uh, 5 into 6. And, and again, we come into contact with this doctrine of election right there again. Right. If you read verses 4b, it says he predestined us for adoptions as son through Jesus Christ. And the point of all of this again is to show his love for you. To show that you matter to him. God does all of this, like I said, to the praise of his glorious grace. Which carries the same meaning that we are called to be conformed to his image. So again, I, I hope you are seeing... The extent God will go to for you, the extent he has gone to really for you, his deliberate willing and planning before time for your sake to reconcile you back to himself, to invite you into deeper intimacy with himself. I want to point out a a technicality right there in verse 5 where he says, where scripture says, he predestined us. For adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. I want to take that phrase, the purpose of his will, and sort of look at that a little bit. When we look at that, that seem, it, it seems like God just has a plan and he executed the plan. Right? But, but there is more to it. That phrase actually carries with it this sense of delight. That yes, there is planning, but there is pleasure and delight and joy. And so what I'm trying to say that all that God is given to you, all we are seeing in these verses, God does not as a grumpy old man, but with pleasure. 
So when I say you matter to God, I want you to also know in your heart that that means that you matter with to God. God, God has made you valuable to himself with pleasure, with joy. Not as if he's hesitating or there's some hindrance in himself, but he's pouring out himself for you with joy, with delight. There is pleasure in it. In him reconciling you to himself. In him showing you value. In him loving you. So I want that to sink into your mind. That the plan of God for you. Conformity to his son's likeness. All of this. All these blessings. God lavishes upon you. With delight. With joy. So again I'm going to ask the same question I asked before. As you see all of this, how seriously are you taking this invitation into intimacy with God? Right, as you face different things in life, I, I hope, I hope, as you come with face to face with challenges, I hope you come back to these passages and you see who you are to God in these passages. You see how much you matter to God. You begin to derive a sense of your identity from these passages. And you begin to understand to whom you belong. The same God who will lavish his blessings upon you with joy, with delight. So now let's move into application. Right. Um, as we've sort of gone through two of these incredible blessings from God. Right. And then again, the next time we'll uh, wrap this up, we'll go through the rest of it in the passages. And as we, we've, we've gone through two of these incredible blessings, we've seen the extent of God's love for us. We've seen that this blessing of election, this blessing of adoption, all of that is showing how much he loves us. The question then becomes, what is our part to play in this? How do we respond? What do we do? How do we engage and enjoy all that God is pouring out to us? In light of this, uh, may I suggest prayer? Uh, it, it seems simple, and it is to an extent, but there is also much more to it which I want to use the rest of our time to talk about. Right? So I want to talk about prayer as our response to this invitation into intimacy with God. So, so to, to be clear, prayer is speaking to God. It includes that, right? But it is primarily an avenue that God has graced us with to deepen our intimacy with himself. So let me first touch on some of our misguided views or misguided practices around prayer. If you're like me, um, there is a tendency in me to look at prayer in a very transactional way. I want certain things done. I pray to God to get them done. Right? Essentially, I, I come at God with the shopping list uh, in a way to twist his arm and I do it in a very Christian way. I'm like, oh God, this will be for your glory. You know, once I get that promotion, like, you know, people will know I'm a Christian. You know, I try to convince myself, right, that I am doing it for his purpose, right? But within my heart, I know what I am after, right? So we, we come at prayer in this very transactional way, right, to get God to produce the results we want. And as you can imagine, if you walk into any uh, Christian bookstore, there is a litany of books that talks about techniques of prayer and how you pray and the different cuts of heaven. I, I, saw, one, I saw one of those books and I started laughing. I'm like, really? There are different cuts in heaven you pray to? I'm like, I didn't know that. <laughs> how you pray, the techniques to employ, how to get your prayers answered. Right? And, and again, we're looking for, we see prayer as this tool to, to leverage to get the outcomes we desire. Which, quite frankly, shows the controlling and manipulative posture of our hearts. And this is why prayer tends to be just a, a grab bag of shopping list of what I want from God. Right? Usually. I mean, God, I want A, B, C, D, E. <laughs> so you see, these misguided views of prayer, they, so they can actually prevent you from going deeper with God, which is what prayer should be about. So in, in the very act of us thinking we are doing something spiritual, we might actually be pulling apart from God. Because what we're simply offering God is a shopping list as opposed to the inner structures of control and manipulation that is existing in our hearts, which is what we should be offering in prayer. So if I may borrow from the language of Second Timothy 3, verse 5, prayer then can have this appearance or this form of godliness 
But we are denying the power thereof, the transforming power of prayer. Is it prayer done the right way? Is this archaeological exploration into our hearts? Right? Where we are offering ourselves to God to become who He intends us to be. Is it due to our fallen nature at times, maybe most times? What God wants for us will be contrary to what we want for ourselves and what we strive for. And, and so prayer is this wrestling match with God, right? And, and so will our prayers be the radical act of increasingly giving ourselves up to God, laying down the old man and taking on the new? Are we willing to give up the, the patterns of our old selves that are carefully constructed to seem pious, but that are really controlling and manipulative? And all this we do. This is funny. See, we do all of this. We pray in this way. We approach prayer in this way. And we forget some of the core fundamental truths of our faith. Like Matthew 6, 8, where Jesus says, Your Father, God, knows what you need before you ask Him. He knows. Right? Matthew six thirty one to 32. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He knows. Right? So, so prayer is, it shouldn't be this, again, grab bag of just stuff we list. Now I'll get to it. We should ask for the things we want, but I'll get to that. But I'm trying to point out the fundamental truth that prayer is primarily an offering of ourselves to God. Um, there is another misguided. We don't have time. I'll skip over this. Okay. How then should we pray? Right? How should we pray? If we talk about some of these misguided views, how should we pray? Right? When Jesus' disciples asked this question, right, Jesus taught them a prayer. Right Now, that, that prayer wasn't something he taught them that they should be reciting and praying in terms of this is, how you, you know, this is what you should be praying. It isn't also a structure that they should follow in terms of, oh, first say this and then say that and then ask for your needs and then finish with that. No. Why do I say that? Jesus didn't pray that way in the garden of Gethsemane. He didn't pray that way. Right? He didn't start by saying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be. He didn't pray that way. Right? From what we know, uh, the apostles, what we see of their prayers, they didn't pray that way either. So what Jesus gave to them was a model of prayer, right? Which from which we'll draw some implications. He gave them a model of prayer. That's how he, that's why he said, this is how you should pray, not what you should pray, right? He gave them a model. So let me quickly touch on that model. When you look at that model in Matthew 6, the first thing you see, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Right? The first thing you see is that God is the reference point. He is the center of all of that prayer, right? Everything is with reference to God. The next three petitions, the next three requests actually has to do with the will of God being done, which shows you what the orientation to prayer should be. And then even when we get to our needs, the daily bread, forgiveness of sins, avoidance of temptation, you see that all of that has a certain inclination, it is with respect to living a life that is conformed to the image of God. It is always about God. Right? The daily needs, the forgiveness of sins, avoiding temptations, all of that, again, centers on God and living a life that is in accordance to His will. So how we pray, and by extension, what we pray for, is often a reflection of the reality of our relationship with God. How we pray, what we pray for, is a reflection, often it is a reflection of the reality, the state of our relationship with God. You could go as far as defining prayer, you could define prayer as the reality of our relationship with God. So what then is the true nature of prayer? Like we've sort of touched on, prayer should be this act by which we empty ourselves of all of our false belongings for the sake of becoming more intimate with the triune God, which again is the point of the two blessings we just saw, right? 
from Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, which really is the point of the whole gospel, everything, right? This is why God created us for intimacy, and prayer becomes this avenue to offer ourselves up to him and to deepen our intimacy. He said, prayer should be a place where we progressively, progressively, note that, lay down our agendas, our need for control, the outcomes we so desperately want, and increasingly take on the cross of Christ and follow him joyfully so. So prayer truly is a radical act, if we do it as it should be done. In prayer, we we get to examine not only our thoughts, but we also get to examine the pattern of our thinking. We think about our thinking and offer everything up to God. And like Nick has sort of been teaching about, you see, in prayer, we should be examining the idols of our heart. What owns my heart? Right? And, you know, if you were to ask me at any point in time, I always say, yeah, God owns my heart. But in reality, there are other things. That I have a grip on my heart and in prayer I should be offering that up. Progressively so, it is a process. Right? But progressively so, we should be offering all of that. Now, again, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't ask for our needs. We should. And even ask for your wants. Right? Yes, ask for your need, ask for your wants. I am all for that. Right? But everything must become this crucible, this platform through which our intimacy with God deepens, where we are asking for what we want and what we need, but as we are asking, we are truly looking at that and saying, is this in accordance to his will? And so when we take scriptures that that say something to this effect, whatever you ask in my name, whatever you ask in prayer, in faith, I would do for you, it isn't a clean, just a clean check that is given to you to ask anything you want. The implication in all those scriptures when you read them in context is that you are aligned with God. And so when you ask in the name of Jesus, it is not just a magic word you slap at the the end of every prayer. Asking in the name of Jesus means you are asking for his sake in accordance to his will. And so when we ask for what we need and what we want... Prayer then becomes this platform, this crucible by which we examine our thoughts. And again, progressively, we lay them down. Now, we just don't lay down our wants and needs as if, oh, well, God is not going to do that thing I really want, so whatever. No. We lay them down knowing that whatever he has for us is far more better, far much better, beyond better than what we think for ourselves. Now, again, very often our perspective is limited to this life while he has an eternal perspective. But even in this life, even in this life, what he has for you is better than what you think of yourself. So life can be hard, right? Life can be tough. Difficulties are bound in all areas of life, really, right? And you think, for example, let's say you think of marriage where two people come together and all the pitfalls that comes with that, right? You, you, you think of parenting where you are responsible for another soul, right? But there's a limit to the extent of your control and what you can do, and there should be a limit, right? In, in wrestling sometimes with the passing of a loved one. Sometimes it's in facing unfavorable diagnosis, Right, from a doctor. Like there are difficulties in this life. Life can be tough. There is confusion about my purpose. Like the seeming unrelenting struggle with sin. Right? And then the longings of our hearts that sometimes are not yet fulfilled, sometimes maybe they will not be fulfilled. And in all of this I am still saying prayer should become this crucible, this platform which deepens our intimacy with God. So sure, we lay down things, but the the exchange is not to our detriment, it is always to our favor. So in laying down, in asking for these needs and these wants, but at the same time saying, God, let your will be done, I am laying this down at your feet, whatever he gives us is ultimately much better and far better and for our ultimate good. So pray for the things you want. Cry aloud to God. Jesus did that. The apostles did that. You see that in the Psalms, this wrestling with God. Right? Ask for your needs, ask for your wants. Pray for those things. Invite God into the mundane activities of your life. Even if it's about you having a silly teeth with a sibling or whatever, invite God into that. He wants that. 
And he cares about that. He cares about helping you to resolve that and move forward in that. So pray for all those things, from the simple things to the big things. Pray for everything. Let me read one more quote on prayer that maybe sums all of this up. Um, Prayer is the outgrowth of both silence and solitude. You see, in silence, we let go of our manipulative control. Silence there is more of a posture of the heart. In silence, we let go of our manipulative control. In solitude, which is also a posture of the heart, we face up to what we are in the depths of our beings. Then prayer becomes this offering of who we are to God. The good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between. Right? Prayer becomes this giving of ourselves, this broken, unclean, grasping, manipulative self to God for the work of God's grace in our lives. So I do not mean to leave you on a somber note, right? Because everything I've said seems like I'm saying, oh yeah, your prayers are manipulative. That's not what I'm trying to say. (laughs) I'm just trying to say we should be checking our hearts. But I'm hoping you see, though, that when we engage God through prayer the right way, it actually becomes a fountain of joy. The deepest kind of joy, which has its source in the triune God. As our intimacy with God deepens, so does our joy in Him, a joy which values the eternal over the temporal. That is always the quality of joy. This is the type of joy and overwhelming satisfaction in God that transcends your anxiety, that transcends death, that transcends difficulties, unfavorable diagnoses, broken relationships, afflictions, successes, and failures. This is the type of joy. So you again, I want you to know that God is very much interested in all areas of your life. Maybe especially the mundane things. The small, simple things that you think he might not care about. He cares. If he didn't, he wouldn't choose you in himself before the foundation of the world. He cares about you. You are valuable to God. You matter to him. God loves to commune with you if you are so willing to have our time with him. So New Year request, right? It's a New Year, New Year resolution, New Year request. So in this New Year, I am praying that one, you are always reminded of who you are in God, a beloved, a beloved, one that is loved, a beloved child of God. That is who you are. That is your identity. I am hoping you always remember that you are loved by God and you matter to God. You are not a random occurrence. And I'm also hoping that you will make prayer a staple of your life. Not just in the new year, maybe the new decade for all eternity on the side of the on this side of life, right? So take practical steps to pray. As, as you pour out your energy and you plan for your career, your family, what you want to do, your finances, your vacations, things of that nature, please plan as well for prayer. Apply some of that same zeal in this area of responding to this deep invitation from God, this invitation into deeper intimacy. So if you're struggling with how to practically engage God more in prayer, perhaps you can do the following. I have like a a homework thing on the handout to look at that. Maybe that would help. But essentially what I'm trying to say, again, if you are struggling, these are suggestions, this is not a rule. Set out a time, carve out a time. Pick a comfortable place, whether you're sitting down, you're taking a walk, whatever the case may be. Maybe take a journal with you. If you like to journal, I like that, right? It, it serves as a way for me to write out all my distracting thoughts. And when I say journal, I'm usually using some kind of technology to do that. <laughs> I actually don't mean a book, but if you like using a book, use that too. Um, write down your thoughts. Maybe write down themes of what to pray about. Maybe write down your prayers, right? Maybe that becomes your way of praying, of engaging God. But my whole point is this. Take your relationship with God seriously. Right? Apply some of that same zeal you apply to other areas of your life. Right? This is God, the Almighty, extending an invitation to you. Please respond. And, and let me be clear, th- this, is not, this is not to mean, oh, you must pray every minute, every hour of the day, every day, and if you don't, God is going to do No, no, no. 
That, that's not what I'm saying. If you skip it, that's fine. Just go back. It's a habit, right? You're trying to develop a habit. It's going to be hard. Right? The first thing I want you to realize is that God loves you. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Right? So you're not praying here and there is not going to change the love of God for you. So I, I don't want you to ever have that burden of, oh, I, I got to pray. And if I don't pray, you know. No, all I'm saying is God is inviting you into deeper intimacy with him. It makes sense to respond to that. So plan for your growth in God. Not by your willpower, not by your strength, of course, right? But by relying on God. Plan for your growth in God. Um, the same way you plan for anything, your career, vacation, whatever. Right? Have something. It doesn't have to be elaborate. Right? And as you do that, God will be faithful to you. God is excited every time you come to him. Why? Take the parable of the prodigal son. Right? The father sees him coming and stands up and runs. And there is much more to that because of the context, uh, because of the culture. To see that man running towards his son is is completely not what should happen in that culture. The son should run to the man, but you see that man running to him. And then in running to him, even before the son recites the, maybe it's an apology, maybe not really an apology, before he recites whatever he wants to say, you see the father hug him, kiss him, give him a ring, ask that he be given a sandals and a rope. This is before the son can even speak out his apology. And this is the same son that wanted the father dead. Because he said, give me my inheritance. Which basically means I don't really care about you. See, that's how God feels about you. He wants you. Each time you come to him, he's excited to be with you. Sometimes maybe that parable should actually be labeled the prodigal father. So God wants you. God cares about you. Right? Let's make that a resolution this year to engage God more. Amen. Let's pray. So God, we thank you again and again for your mercies, for your grace. For how you lavishly bless us with so much. And we are so undeserving. And and there is very little we can say to this, very little that we can give. What we can give you is our broken self. But you are excited to receive us and to give us your own self. It's, it's, a, it's a funny situation where we come to you with our broken, twisted self, and yet you give us your perfect self. So, Father, please help us in this year for all of our lives to keep responding to this invitation of intimacy. Let us not be burdened by any form of condemnation, even when we don't respond. But to know that you love us, and that every time we come before you, you are excited. There is delight in your heart to be with us. So God, help us to be with you. In Jesus' name, amen.